0: Caitlin Zaloom is a professor of social and cultural analysis at New York University. Her first book, Out of the Pits, Traders and Technology from Chicago to London, An Ethnographic Study of the International Financial System, appeared in 2006. Her second book, Indebted, How Families Make College Work at Any Cost, was published in 2019. Caitlin Zaloom, thank you so much for joining us here at the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: You grew up in New York City. You attended a private high school and college. And then you went to uh, one of the great state universities in the country, uh, Berkeley.
1: That is right. And my time at Berkeley was really important. But something that you might not know is that my parents met at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. So I feel like I am possible as a human being. Because of one of the great public universities in the country, there is no way that my father, who is the child of a Syrian immigrant, and my mother, who is the daughter of Appalachia, would ever have met if it weren't for the University of Michigan.
0: You are, in some ways, the the product of the very great public institutions that you write about in this book. You went to study at Berkeley. What did you study there?
1: I was a graduate student in cultural anthropology, which actually they call sociocultural anthropology at Berkeley. That hyphen between socio and cultural is actually really important because it indicates that we're not only studying kind of values and meanings, but also the structures and social hierarchies that are embedded in those cultural apparatus and which reproduce
0: them. You would at one point describe yourself as an economic anthropologist. Could you tell me a bit about what, what that means?
1: An economic anthropologist is someone who's really interested in all forms of exchange. So here in the United States, we think of economics as being about market exchange, goods in the marketplace that you trade for money. But anthropologists think about economics much more broadly than that. We really look at all kinds of exchanges, both monetary and importantly, especially in our context today, non-monetary. For instance, 50% of the economic activity in this country is uncompensated. It's the kind of labor that goes into producing homes, raising children, doing the shopping, cleaning the house. All of that labor is something that anthropologists would look at very closely to try to understand how our cultural beliefs and values shape what our trading is like
0: you're you're really sort of an expert on uh, exchange and different forms of exchange, symbolic and otherwise.
1: That's right, but we do really look at the kinds of exchanges that people count as economic. So it's a it's a view from the perspective of the people who are actually doing the trading. So it is symbolic exchange for sure, but then it's also the exchanges that you do uh, when you go to. Target or Trader Joe's as well. We don't count market activity out. It's just part of a broader spectrum that we like
0: to consider. And what what drew you to this particular perspective?
1: That is a very good question. I grew up, uh, as you mentioned, and went to high school in New York City. My parents actually lived in the suburbs and I was always a bit of an outsider at this very elite high school that I went to and you went to too. And I think that I was always really fascinated with how it was that my peers at Horace Mann seemed to take their apartments on Fifth Avenue and their father's jobs in the banking sector for granted. That was the first step of, of my becoming interested in what economics means, not only in the narrower sense, but really as a kind of social system that we all live within. My experience of kind of crossing between worlds as a kid was always very profound. So my father, for instance, was a public defender in Newark. In the 1960s and early 1970s, he worked in criminal justice reform for the state of New Jersey. So I was always going between the kind of nice leafy suburb where I lived with my parents to Newark, where my dad's friends lived. That was one of my very first experiences of crossing. And I think that it meant that I could never take the social environments that I moved through for granted. I grew up with stories about the uprisings in Newark. You know, my parents lived there uh, when, when that was happening. And there were snipers all over my mother's neighborhood while my father was downtown working to try to get people out of prison. Uh, and the snipers were there pointing them outward to keep people out so I think that there, that is a, uh, a really stark reminder about the kinds of power that go into creating and sustaining the sorts of social divisions that we live with and which we do too often take for granted.
0: In graduate school, you decide to write about the Chicago Board of Trade. How did you come up with that idea?
1: I was always very interested in global finance and money because of my experience in New York City. And there were huge changes happening in global finance at the time that I was in graduate school in the mid and late 1990s. I was also in the Bay Area. So the rise of the internet and the changes that global connectivity was bringing were really at the top of my mind. I worked in Berkeley with a Sociologist named Manuel Castells. And his work at the time was all about how the internet was changing social life. So I brought those two things together to try to look at how the internet and global connectivity were shaping financial markets.
0: So even as you were sort of in the thick of late capitalism and consumption in uh, New York at a Tony private school, you're also thrown up against the next manifestation of that, which is the internet boom and all the things that came around with it.
1: And maybe it was my desire not to feel so embarrassed because in the 1990s, if you were in your 20s, there were tons of people around you all um, getting really, really rich. And being in graduate school was not one of those ways. So I figured I would turn it to my advantage.
0: You decide to work on the topic of markets and financial exchange at the Chicago Board of Trade. Your first job was as a runner on the grain trading floor.
1: Yeah, it was really quite a spectacle. Hundreds of people packed onto a trading floor and into these pits, which were octagonal stepped structures that started out a little bit above floor level and went down. Everything would be kind of quiet in there while the runners were doing their business of kind of organizing the trade that the brokers would do um, and with the traders. And then the bell would go off in the morning. And it was just like this incredibly loud, really chaotic seeming scene. It was completely deafening. And then there were the, like these boards above where their prices are changing really, really fast. I wanted to understand what the order was that allowed for all of this incredible activity to be happening. I was I was also getting, you know, elbowed out of the way and <laughs> variously hit on and <laughs> sometimes just wildly ignored. It was a really intense kind of fieldwork.
0: There probably weren't many other 20-something, uh, you know, brunettes on their way to a PhD uh, running around.
1: No, they really did not understand what I was doing there. That actually worked to my advantage. I was perfectly upfront about it, but it didn't really matter to most of the traders that I was working on a study.
0: Were there other uh, women on the trading floor?
1: Very few. Very few. I mean, it's really a man's world, or it was It was a man's world on the trading floor. It still is a man's world. Now that trading happens inside banks There were several women, but I mean, I could count them on two hands and mostly those women were related to other family members on the floor. So there were networks of families. One family had 13 people on the trading floors of the Chicago Board of Trade.
0: So after that, you worked in London as a futures trader.
1: I did. Uh, Also, for my uh, dissertation work, but I I was taken in by one of the um, trading firms in Chicago, and I went with them as they opened their office in London to work in the European market. It was very much a comparative experience, but it was also a, a lesson in how those global markets were sewn together, not only through the cables that joined these different sites kind of physically so that trading could happen in the sort of instantaneous way that it does, but also joined in terms of the cultural expectations of trading itself and what kind of people were assumed to be the right kind of people to be traders. As a cultural anthropologist, what was interesting to me about that was to look at how this system that was like part technology, but then also part culture, came together to create something that we think of as a global market.
0: Is that participant observer technique that you used, is that common in the academic discipline you were trained in?
1: It is the foundational method for cultural anthropology. Most anthropologists do some kind of participant observation work. What was unusual about what I was doing was that I was doing this traditional kind of participant observation in a site where There was very little access to most people who might want to see and experience and live what was going on in a place like a global financial market.
0: I imagine a lot of participant observation work is done through the observation part, interviewing, things like that. I I don't think there are many people who actually get down and start trading.
1: I was very fortunate to be able to do that. I had a deal with them. and The deal was that I was going to be there doing my research, and if I made money, They were going to keep it. And if I lost money, they were going to take my losses. And that seemed like a perfectly fair deal to me.
0: The book that resulted from it is Out of the Pits, Traders and Technology from Chicago to London. You say at one point that it was really a book about ethics. And you say, quote, the problems I consider here are ethics. What is the proper relationship between thinking and acting in the market? What is the relationship between the norms of economic action and the material and human form of the market? I felt like that prefigured a lot of the work you did in "Indebted: How Families Make College Work at Any Cost, looking at the structures and the ethical dilemmas that people get into as they act within these structures.
1: Absolutely. One of the things that was interesting to me in the futures markets was that I was watching A market under construction. This kind of global futures market that we live with today was something that was being put together while I was observing it. They were all trying to make a market that would correspond to these ideals that they carried, which were about kind of transparency and autonomy and competition, and whether or not we believe that they live up to those things or not. Those are the operative, cultural, and operational goals that they had, which are also ethical ones. They're ones about trying to organize human action to correspond to a a set of very particular values, like that competition gets us to a quote-unquote true price in the market. So competition, it's an ethical tool in their world which I found to be really, really interesting. Now, when I turned to look at the market that we've built for higher education, I also wanted to know about what the ethics were, not just of the dilemmas that, that families face, but also of the values that are built into the system of paying through college for debt we've put together basically since the 1990s.
0: One of the most powerful themes running through both of these books was really the way that we operate in structures that have all these implicit moral codes and ethical ideas and goals. There is this ideal that trading brings out the best in you. There's a purity to it because it's all about the market and finding this perfect price, this sort of neoliberal dream that the only ways that true justice or fairness can be wrought from the chaos of our society.
1: It starts from the idea that society is chaotic, and that individuals in competition are the foundation of what our social system should be. Of course, like that is an incredibly masculinist perspective, and it takes for granted all kinds of things. But it is an ideal that corresponds very closely to the rise of the market as a mechanism through which we are supposed to be finding the right distribution of goods and services and life chances. And that's really something that's happened since the 1970s. And it was really precisely during the 1970s that this culture of trading arose. That culture of trading becomes a very good way to understand what is happening in the broader cultural transformation that the market has wrought.
0: It is astounding to look back at uh, so many cultural phenomenon in the last 50 years and how much they're shot through with all the masculinist market metaphors that you point out in both books.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So it's it's not only that that the market will solve the problems. It is also that exposure to market discipline will shape people into the kinds of beings that will then respond in positive ways to being inside of the market. So the market not only find solutions. It also is supposed to make people.
0: Your second book, Indebted, How Families Make College Work at Any Cost, which was published in 2019. Maybe you could tell me a bit about the origins of the
1: book. It started actually at the moment when I got my first job and had to sign up for a 401k plan. And so this was after I'd spent time on the trading floors. I'd had all this market experience and yet I got all of this paperwork about kind of like, well, what particular, you know, mutual funds should I choose in order to secure my future? I was just like, I have none of the tools to understand <laughs> What's inside of these things? How on earth am I supposed to choose? That was my first indication that there was something really amiss because even with the experience I had inside the markets, I was being asked to make decisions as if I were a market, but without any of that information. And as I got deeper into my experience teaching in universities, I started to hear more and more from my students about how in debt they were just for their college educations. It dawned on me eventually that they were being asked to do a similar thing to what I had done with the 401k, which was that they were being asked to make these huge financial decisions that were going to have vast repercussions for their lives, but around student debt and in precisely the institutions that I was working in as a professor. So I really felt like I had an obligation to my students to try to bring some light to what was happening to us as teacher and student inside this vast university system that was costing them.
0: The book is a fascinating combination of a razor-sharp analysis and wonderfully illuminative anecdotes. I went to college in the 1980s. You went to college in the 1990s. And I was fortunate enough to be able to leave college without debt, as were most of the people I knew. And when I started teaching, I was surprised by how many would-be graduate students would come in and tell me uh, sort of sheepishly, usually, how much debt they had. And I finally got to the point where that was one of the first questions I would ask. And if someone says something like, uh, well, I have 100000 or $90,000 in debt, I would just say, you seem great, but you just can't do this program. You're going to incur more debt just because living in New York is expensive and NYU can only defray a certain amount of your tuition costs. And it's unconscionable for me to encourage you to get this kind of specialized training and uh, to incur more debt. And I, I never anticipated having that kind of conversation, but I felt it was almost immoral for me not to bring that up.
1: It really speaks to the fact that higher education today has incredibly high stakes for students. It was not always the case that it was so important to have a college education to be able to do what you wanted to do in the world, even if you were an ambitious person. But today, more than ever, it is essential to have a college degree and oftentimes a graduate degree too. That doesn't mean that it's going to pay off. And of course, in a field like journalism I would imagine, the prospects of being able to have a really good solid job are speculative at best. And that kind of high stakes thinking is what we've really thrust students into with the cost of college as it is
0: today. You describe this perfect storm where the price of colleges, universities, has gotten dramatically more expensive. And then at the exact same time that the government subsidies have decreased much more dramatically than I ever was aware of.
1: And that's particularly about our public university system. The cost of college has gone way up exactly, as you say, at the same time where states across the country have been slashing their higher education budgets, even in places that have managed to maintain very high standards of education, like in Michigan and like in California. Today, UCLA gets 11% of its budget from the state of California. That makes UCLA, one of the great public universities in this country, public in name only. We've decimated the public university systems, and it is in strengthening those that a future that feels less high stakes for students might lie. And
0: on the other side of the ledger, you say at one point, It's been estimated that 45 million people in the United States hold educational debt totaling $1.5 trillion, more than what Americans owe on their credit cards or their auto loans. And because of the nature of the bankruptcy laws, it's one of the few forms of debt which cannot be extinguished through bankruptcy procedures.
1: I would also note that the amount of higher education debt in this country is usually cited as the second largest debt that a family or a person will carry outside of their home loan, right? So so those two things are held up both kind of together, but also separate. And one thing that I think is really important is that we can start to think about education debt not starting when a young person walks in the college gates, but rather at the moment where families have to decide where to send their six-year-old to first grade because the amount of money that people spend on a house is very closely tied to what kind of school district they would like to buy into. So higher education debt should really include mortgage debt, and we should start to think about it as defining the lives of families from their earliest moments together all the way through paying off those college loans. That's an
0: interesting point. There seems to be a million different ways to manipulate and handle home debt and different whole moral system about why that debt is good. And I don't really see any of that thinking being applied creatively to student debt.
1: So when student debt first became a major component of how students paid for school, say in the 1990s, it was supposed to be like mortgage debt. It was supposed to be good debt. Bad debt is like credit card debt, debt you spend on things. And good debt shouldn't really be thought about as debt at all. It should be thought of as an investment. And so that was the case with student debt. It's supposed to be a kind of way that a person prepared themselves for a future. But what we're seeing now is because the future is so very uncertain today more than ever, of course, with COVID, that this idea that you're going to put down a ton of money now in order to get your payoff later, seems foolish.
0: The story tell in Indebted is about all the ways that Families design their lives around paying for uh, their children to go to schools. The deeper theme that you explore in this book is the way that it both has changed the meaning of what it is to be middle-class and raised the stakes about how one stays in or aspires to join the middle-class. I saw it as having these religious dimensions. You described the rituals, the faith that families put in the process and in the possibility of their children entering the middle-class. That process by which they bring their potential out, and it struck me almost like a rebirth. And of course, there's the underlying morality that accrues to the ways that families either Make those arrangements wisely or don't make those arrangements. It's almost like a work of theology in some ways.
1: Yeah, there definitely is a very strong component of faith. Faith in children that marks parents as middle class, right? There's a deep, deep belief that children should be making themselves into new people who are going to be different from their parents and better. But of course, that is only going to happen very far in the future. So, all All of your investment, your love and your actions as a parent have to be done with that very far away goal in mind. And that is an act of faith. And it's one that is a very culturally deep set of beliefs.
0: You did a really marvelous job of defamiliarizing these processes primarily through this fantastic materialist analysis of the documents themselves. And by the end of the book, I realized what a strange system this was. (laughs)
1: It is a strange system, and another way to think about ourselves as quite strange is just to look at other places. Most of the European countries, Canada, Australia, all of these places carry different kinds of assumptions about who should be paying. For instance, in Sweden, Swedish students carry some of the highest debt loads in part because of the fact that once they leave their parents' homes, they take on all the debt for their own lives. Once they leave, they're gone. Here in the United States, we ask their parents to pay for young adults' educations, and that dependence is presumed to last like well into their 20s. I mean, even if you look, say, at the healthcare system, children can stay on their parents' insurance, if parents are lucky enough to have that, until they're 26. That's wild. That would be completely unheard of in most of Europe, and certainly in Sweden.
0: You have this phrase to describe that you call it "enmeshed autonomy," which is this paradox that the way to make them stand on their own and be autonomous is for us to take on enormous amounts of debt and to and to enmesh them and link them ever closer to us and our financial futures.
1: The issue is that. There is never um, autonomy. <laughs> I mean, from an anthropological perspective, we are always defined by our uh, our dependencies. So here in the United States, family has become more and more and more important for launching children into the world as state supports have receded and receded and receded. In other places, things like you know state supported education that is one way to support young adults to become more autonomous or a relatively affordable cost of living, um, abundant jobs. These are all things that that create autonomy outside of family life. But because we don't have those things in the United States, family comes to stand in and become a real safety net that creates this paradox. because in America, we're all supposed to be autonomous individuals, <laughs> that's the goal, right? But without the kinds of supports, that young adults need to launch into the world, family has to stay enmeshed. So it's a paradox of our of our own making. But I hope that by becoming a little bit more aware of that, how are in fact kind of betraying our own values with the system that we've built, that we we might be able to start to change it.
0: And this is another example of the way that the marketization of public life, the privatization of public things has come to bite us. You talk about the social speculation that has to do with all these decisions having to do with economics and education.
1: Parents and young adults speculate because they want to do the right thing according to their own moral values. They want to be educated. They want to contribute to the world, not only to make a lot of money or to make a decent mm-hmm. amount of money, but really to educate themselves to try to make a better situation for all of us together. And it's crazy that we have to kind of inflict this economic logic of speculation when what we want is for young people and their families to be thinking about about the future and how to make their own worlds better.
0: And this gets into uh, the dominance of uh, what I think of sort of a STEM ideology, the science, technology, and math, thinking that, that those are the real subjects and that if we are going to lay out so much money for education, at the very least, our students should be studying things that are actually going to fill in the blank, get them ahead, better society, whatever it is. But it does make me wonder about the sort of wither the liberal arts. I find among the students I teach, the undergraduates, there's a, a real skepticism about liberal arts.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that um, we need to think about is what debt does in these situations. We know that that debt requires people to pay, but it actually also shifts the kinds of subjects that people think they want to study. Now, The data say that liberal arts majors do just fine in the long run. The STEM majors get paid more out of the gate, okay? that But that doesn't mean that they don't, you know, that it levels out. But what it looks like is that the people who are the STEM majors end up with being able to pay their debts right away. So the question is, what is the ideological effect? Well, so we raise the amount of of money that people have to go into debt in order to get an education, and they are looking for a quick payoff. Of course they are. They have to. And so it really twists the goals of education when we make students so indebted.
0: Yeah, you can't quite say to somebody, uh, I know that it looks terrible in the first five or 10 years, but it will even out after that.
1: Well, right. And, I mean, and, and, and statistical regularities are not how people make decisions about things, right? I mean, people make decisions about, about things that are proximate to them, that they can control, right? You know, I mean, there's of course that old adage that you are not a statistic, and that is completely true. It's not that statistics are wrong, but they may or may not ever apply to an individual. So, so in order to make, um, an indebted young person safe, um, you know, parents want them to you know, be a business major that that has an obvious application so that then they might be able to control their futures. but the problem is that once once they're in debt and once this calculus has been foisted on them, it already compromises their futures. If we want young people to be able to improve the world, to be able to think of new solutions, we shouldn't be trapping them within old systems and old expectations. This is a perspective that is hardly mine alone. This is really something that I'm drawing from John Dewey, right? This is the early 20th century. We've been fighting this fight between a capacious education that is designed to help students become better citizens and an education that is designed to slot people into the jobs that corporations need them to do now for 100 years. It's not only about money and innovation. It is about democracy. It is about creating people who will bring us into a new future.
0: We're having this conversation in 2020, in uh, early October. Much of the teaching is going on uh, in distance. There are now efforts to bring students into classrooms. One of the ways that the sort of transformational uh, experience of education is at least supposed to take place uh, is by having people interacting. You often hear talk about the social value of, of going to college and, and, and how essential that is, encountering people uh, living on your own, uh, having to manage your own class loads, being exposed to different parts of the country, things like that. I think we can agree that those are generally positive things. In a distance learning world where students are either at home, at their parents' home, uh, learning on computers or in dorms, but also learning (laughs) in computers, not going to classes, I wonder whether there's any possibility of having that kind of experience. Will that kind of experience simply fall away
1: it's a very good question. I think the first thing to note is that actually for most college students in this country, living at home while going to college is actually already the way that they do things. I mean, of course, not necessarily online or, you know, as many of us are kind of like trapped in our living room, but it is only for a minority of, of students who go to residential colleges that that kind of mixing you're describing is is true now that is also an ideal that I think is really quite important. And it's something that makes our educational system in the United States unique. So the question for me is, like, how do we create opportunities for coming together and learning together in kind of democratic fashion that might be outside of college campuses? I'm convinced that college campuses will eventually reopen, but it also just I hope, sensitizes us to the issue that college campuses can't be the only spaces of kind of learning how to do democracy, of democratic solidarity. That exists. I think that college campuses are really, really good for doing that, but we also need other sites.
0: But I do wonder about whether the dream of distance education, which you know 20 years ago caused all sorts of elite institutions to flush tens of millions of dollars down the drain, which has now reappeared with this sort of you know the kind of distance learning that that both you and I have participated in via Zoom. It's clear that there's a larger role for that. That it's not going to replace the classroom, perhaps, and. Won't replace teaching and teachers. The, the takeaway will be that there are some roles for this, and I and I sort of wonder whether there's a, a way that out of this sort of COVID disaster, we will see some opportunities to foster some of the interaction and sort of democratic activities that that you value, um, with also uh, bringing some of these technological things to maybe even the playing field and allow people to uh, participate who uh, who are being priced out of the market otherwise.
1: So one element that I think is is really productive is the way that um, technology can be used to supplement uh, existing forms of teaching in the university. I mean, which is actually how automation has worked in other areas of the economy. So we we tend to think of digital platforms coming in and replacing labor, building robots to do the jobs uh, that, that that we all do. But if you look at the data those kinds of automations are actually supplementing, not replacing the kinds of work that, that generally happen. And I think that that's going to also happen in the university as well. One of the things that that I'm doing in my class this term is recording lectures or interviews and doing much more kind of intensive engagement with my students when we're, you know, synchronously together on Zoom. And I think that that actually enhances the kinds of learning about exchange and debate that really are the best parts of education. That's what education should be doing. So like the one-to-many download that is even the face-to-face lecture, I think is something that we shouldn't kind of fetishize. I think that we should be thinking about ways to enhance are direct engagements with students and you know there are some elements of like digital recording and classwork that can really do that.
0: So so the university won't go the way the Chicago Board of Exchange is going.
1: <laughs> well, they, I mean it, it might do that but but you know when when they closed the trading floors it wasn't the end of the futures markets it was just a transformation in the way that that, that work happened. And so I think that the continuity there that we have to be really sensitive to is that we have to be quite conscious of the kinds of ethics that we're building into these systems. What are the relationships between students and teachers that we want to foster and why? Why do we want Those particular kinds of relationships, those are the kinds of things that need to be built into the system kind of first and foremost. I'm much less concerned about, you know, whether or not we're making profits for venture capitalists who are, by the way, all over this sector, something that I've only recently even begun to scratch uh, the surface of. There are many, many people looking to make money in this moment, and I think that we should really be careful about
0: that sounds like your next book.
1: Ah, maybe.
0: (laughs) I would certainly read it. Caitlin, uh, Zaloum, thank you very much for talking to us today, and uh, good luck. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.